G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You don't have to look too hard to see that in Australia, the combined drug and alcohol problem is becoming a national epidemic. And that's not an overstatement. To take just one element of the bigger problem, there is a unique drug on the street That's destroying families at a rate like no other drug has ever done before. Meth or ice not only binds a person up in addiction, but it changes them. It changes the way they speak, the way they act, and the way they treat those around them. Well, this hour, Peter Lyndon James is our guest. He helps people break free from life-controlling issues such as meth, and other drugs, bringing them to the point where they want to change and make the decision to turn their life around so badly that they will finally stop taking drugs. He's in the middle of what is known as the Tough Love Tour, and he's in WA, and the Tough Love Tour are all about equipping families to find ways in which they can successfully handle a person on drugs. So a special welcome along to 2020 to Peter Lyndon James. Peter, welcome. Morning, Neil, and uh, morning, listeners. Peter, you're in Albany as we're talking to you today, and you're going to be speaking this morning at an Icebreakers event at the PCYC. Tonight you'll be speaking at St. Joseph's College. Uh, this is a tour which uh, is really touching various elements of the community, but just in your experience, how widely spread is this issue, particularly with ice or meth, uh, and how, how, how devastating is it for families in the, the areas that you're speaking? Uh, in particular, methamphetamines. Uh, methamphetamines is probably the worst uh, drug ever to hit our planet. Um, we've been speaking over all over Australia, um, from major cities to country towns, um, and no one knows how to actually handle it. Um, methamphetamines itself, it doesn't just destroy the person. It actually wipes out four generations of family. Um, as you mentioned before, it does change the way they think and speak and act. Um, uh, myself, personally, I used to use... Um, drugs uh, for 26 years and my drug of choice was actually methamphetamines and I used to sell on average of two and a half kilos a bit a day and so I understand the drug extremely well. Okay, you're not only someone who was addicted to it, you were also a drug pusher in the sense of you were selling it and uh, yeah. and and so you better let us in on some details in your background here. Uh, take us through those times of addiction and uh, pushing drugs uh, to what it is that um, turned you around. Um, so basically, what it is, I, I I spent twenty six years of my life in institutions and prisons. And my parents separated from an early age when I was seven. My dad um, left the boat with a babysitter. She was fifteen. Left mum with five kids, and mum became an alcoholic. Um, between the ages of seven and nine, um, I watched uh, my mum get sexually assaulted, physically assaulted on multiple occasions. Uh, myself, I was sexually abused at the age of eight. Um, I've been put in many foster homes and children's homes. Um, I've moved every three months my whole life from the age of seven. 
Um, I didn't want to get stuck in uh, or stay with foster families and children's homes. All I wanted was my mum and my dad. And so I kept running away, and my brothers and sisters went to live with my grandparents. My older sister went to her friends. And uh, myself, I just kept putting with foster families, kept running away. Eventually, they got sick of me running away. And um, they put me in a locked facility, and the locked facility was a boys' prison. <coughs> so, I was, oh, excuse me. So I put in Longmore at the age of nine. And Longmore is, is a prison with uh, bars and gates and razor wire and tall fences. It's a, uh, it's a juvenile detention centre. Um, so I got put in there at the age of nine, and um, I spent uh, uh, my first three months in there. But over, the, over that first three months in Longmore, it was the first time in the two years that I actually had a place to call home. Now, up until then, between the age of seven and nine, my instability, not feeling like I belonged anywhere, feeling like my mum loved the bottle more than me. And my dad, um, he just disappeared off the scene. And all the stuff that I went through when I got put in Longmore, I remember the first time um, they put me down into the prison cell. I jumped on the bed and cried and just said, please, if you let me out now, I'll be a good boy. I'll behave. I won't run away again. And that didn't happen. I woke up the next day. And there was a lot of kids in the prison. And um, those kids... I could relate to those kids. All those kids had stories like mine, how mum had done this and dad had done that. And so they became my friends, and soon they became my family. I spent three months in there, and when I got out, I met one of the kids um, who introduced me to drugs and breaking the houses and stealing cars. I became what they call institutionalised. So I literally spent my whole childhood from the age of seven um, to 18 locked up in prison. I'd be out for a day, back in for a month, out for a month, back in for 11 months. And I spent seven years in Riverbank, uh, seven years in Longmore, two years in Riverbank. And then I graduated to adult prison in 2000, in uh, 1991. And my jail number is IO912410. Um, I've also been to all the prisons in Western Australia. Um, in 2001, I got out of, of prison after doing a one year of a five year prison term. I got out on good behaviour and parole. And I went straight back into selling drugs, like selling drugs full time. And within three months, I was selling an average of two and a half kilos of methamphetamine a day, lots of drugs and guns. And and um, I got up one morning uh, after 16 days of no sleep. Uh, I had the helicopter over the roof and tactical response group come through my, my house, front and back, smashed all the windows. And I had me in the kitchen with a gun to my head, so I shot a gun to my head and a knee in my back. And I had my wife up in the corridor with a gun to her head. And um, I just... Yeah, I was stuck. I was trapped in a world that I didn't want to be in, but I didn't know how to get, get out. And even when I wasn't in prison, I was still in prison. Peter, take I us to the I... time when you did have a change. Was this in prison or were you out of prison when you decided to go change. a different direction? So my first change was in um, May 1986. Um, I used to go to all the Christian groups in prison. Um, not to actually... Um, hear what they had to say, mainly the Perl and the Sheilas, and to get a free feed. Um, and every time I went to these Christian groups, it was the only place in the prison, every time I was locked up, that I could let my guard down and be who I was. Um, and I found that these Christian people never actually judged me, and they never picked on me, they never had fun of me, but it was the only place I could actually relax. And it was Pastor Alan Shepherd and um, Maureen Shepherd from Broken Chain Ministries, um, who faithfully over 15 years kept coming to Longwall, and I remember one, one day I was uh, 16, 17, and they brought in a video called The Cross and the Switchblade. And I remember watching the video, and I went to my cell that night, and I yelled out, God, if you can change his life, you can change mine. And um, that was the first encounter where I really experienced God's love and his goodness and his grace, where 
he just fooled myself. Um, he gave me a scripture back then. It was John eight thirty two. Um, if when I got out of prison, I stopped um, reading my Bible and and fell away again. And then fast forward to two thousand and one. I'd just been raided by the police. Um, my whole life was a mess. And my friend just got seven years jail for one ounce, and here I'm selling sixty eight ounces. And I knew that I was about to get a big prison term. And then um, weird stuff started happening in my life where. I started hearing voices, and it was God calling me to himself. Um, I'd be driving in my car, and i hear this voice, Peter, I want you to follow me, I want you to follow me. And so I'd follow this car in front. It went left, it went right, and then it left, right. I pulled over the side of the road. The car drove off. Um, and then I'd look, and I'd see a family playing in the park. And I heard this voice, Peter, I'm offering you this. And I sat in my car, and I just started bawling while I was out crying. And that happened like for two days, and and for two days, every time I got in my car, I was by myself. Now, this voice led me over all over Perth, showing me everything I ever wanted, which was to be normal. Um, I told my wife, I said, "Listen, something weird is going down," um, and and my wife thought I was just uh, losing it on the drugs, so I thought I'd get on my bike, and I went out on my bike and I took off, and I lost the surveillance team that was following me, and and I was out heading out towards a place called um, Lanceland. And the same start, stuff started happening. In the end, I started to ignore and the, I want you to follow me in the flashes of light. And I just kept driving. I was sitting on 110 going down um, uh, the, the highway. And my bike started to vibrate. And the handlebars started to vibrate. And if you're into bikes, it's probably the best tune I've ever heard on a bike. And then all of a sudden, it just broke down. Now, my, my bike was a VN 1500 Cruiser. And it was brand new. Um, full tank of juice. Nothing wrong with it. And, and later on when they picked up, they just started the motor, but I couldn't get my bike started again, so I got on the other side of the road. Um, I hung my jacket on the side of the post, I put my thumb out, and I started to hitch. And this young couple picked me up, and I would have been 22, 23, and I got in the car, and when I got in the car, we started heading down the road, um, and I had this music playing, and the young fella, the young fella, um, out of the blue, he just leaned over the seat and says, mate, I really feel like I've got to tell you something. And I said, what's that? And he says, I feel that God is telling me to tell you, mate, that, that he really loves you and that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. Now, this is a complete stranger and I hadn't heard from God um, since I was a little boy when I was 16, 17 in Riverbank. And I remember just breaking down crying and I told him to pull over and let me out of his car. And I got out of the car and I went and laid in the bush and I just cried for about probably 20 minutes um, them days I used to have diamond rings on my fingers and a big beard and bald head and and um, I cried and, and uh, for about 20 minutes in the bush walked back out the hallway, hang my leather jacket over one of the street poles and started hitching again. And the next fellow that picked me up, he was in a black FT50 pickup truck. Um, I got in his car and we started driving. He says, "Mate, is that your bike back there?" I said, "Yeah, that's that's mine." He says, "I've got a set of ramps here. I reckon we can get it on the back and I'll give you a tone with it." I said, mate, I just want to get home. I'm, I'm not really worried about the bike. And um, they need to drop me in the petrol station. That'd be great. And so he kept driving. And this fella, um, he had a black F250, uh, black long ponytail hair. Uh, half his fat tattoo, face was covered in tattoos to the right-hand side. Um, and we're driving along and, and out of the blue. He just said, mate, I really feel like I've got to tell you something. And I said, okay, well, what's that? He said, God's telling me to tell you, mate, that that he really loves you um, and that he has a plan and a purpose for your life. And I just started crying in the car. It's the second car in the space of not even 10 k, telling me that God loved me. And he pulled over at the petrol station 
And I remember crying as I got out of the car and I walked into the petrol station. I took off all my gold jewelry and I threw it all in the bin. And I ran out to ran out to the um, road roadhouse phone box and rang my wife. And I said, "Listen, so you got to pick me up. Something really really bad's going down." And um, she said, "I can't. I got to pick the kids up from school." And so I was left with no other choice but to hitch. And I went back out and put my thumb out again. And, the, the, and I got about a hundred metres past the petrol station. And the third car to pick me up was an elderly lady, um, and she was driving an old Datsun 200B. She had platinum white hair and like a like a big bun on her head, and she would have been probably 85. And I got in the passenger seat of this elderly lady's car, and she said to me, I love it, I don't know pick hitchhiking is up, but you look different. And we started heading up the highway, and, and she was just talking, and she was just really beautiful. And, and then out of the blue, she says, Honey, um, I really feel like I've got to tell you something. And I said, what's that? She goes, God's telling me to tell you, sweetie, that he loves you and that he has a plan for your life. And um, I sat there uh, in the car and I cried. Um, and she drove me all the way from near above all the way to Bayswater. And I, I literally cried all the way. And that was three cars in a space of not even 15 k's. And told me that, that God loved me and had a plan for my life. I grabbed my wife when I got home and said, listen, I can't stay anymore. I need to go somewhere and think. So I grabbed my wife and my two children, and we got in the car and we drove around. We looked for a place to sleep. We found a motel, and I booked into a motel, and I'd done what I'd normally done. I covered all the mirrors and checked for the surveillance gear, and, and then I went to sleep. And I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And when I woke up in the morning, um, I had a dream. And, it, and when I woke up, that same feeling that I felt in my prison cell, um, as a little boy... God's presence was all over me. And he told me in my dream, he says, Peter, you're going to travel the world with a group of Christian people and you're going to tell them how to change your life. I want you to go to church. And I woke up, it was like three o'clock in the morning and his presence was just washing me from the tip of my head to the sole of my feet like I've never experienced before. And I told my wife, I've just had a dream from God. And she goes, oh, that's nice. Dear. And rolls over and goes back to sleep. Um, the next morning, I went and got um, my wife and my kids all churchified. And I've never been to church in all my life, and I thought you had to dress up in a tuxedo-type suit. So I went around and churchified my wife and myself and my kids. And we spent the whole day looking for a church. Every time I tried to pull into a church, God told me, I heard the same voice, not that church, not that church. And 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I ended up in Morley. And um, I seen this church, and he said, I want you to go to that church. So we looked for the service times. I was bored, and it said 6.30, so I we went and had some dinner and went back to the church. And the second um, I walked towards the building, and these elderly well, these young people actually grabbed our children and stole our children, and we didn't understand them days it was called Kids Church. Yeah. But they stole our children, and, and and we walked in this building. And the second we walked in this building, I started to shake. My knees started to shake. I started to shake. And my wife, I don't know what she was thinking, but I was, I was a mess. I was boiling my eyes out. And the preacher was preaching on how dare that uncircumcised Philistine, how dare that uncircumcised Philistine defy the armies of the living God. And I was boiling my eyes out for the whole service. And when he gave the offer and the altar call to come up, if you'd like to repent from your sins and ask Jesus Christ to order your life, if you're sick of the life you're living, if you want to change, if you want to break free from the drugs and the addiction and the life that you're living, and ask Jesus into your heart, repent of your sins, and he will change life. And I remember just shaking. As I walked forward and fell to the floor, and I asked Jesus Christ into my heart, and I heard his voice as clear as day. He said, Peter, 
I want you to give up everything you own and follow me. And I just remember kneeling at the altar, bawling my eyes out, crying. And that day, Jesus Christ came into my heart. And that was the day where my life actually began. And the old me uh, started to disappear and, and the new me started to come. And being a Christian has been, for me, the hardest thing I've ever done. I've lived a life where everything was acceptable for me. I just did it to all of a sudden become a Christian and learning how to be led by His Spirit, to obey Him and to walk in His ways. Um, but I literally gave up everything I owned and, and bit by bit I started listening to His voice. At the time, I was on bail for a pound of pot, two handguns, uh, intended to sell and supply, as well as a lot of other stuff. Um, I, I swapped my dodgy lawyer for a legit lawyer. Uh, and, and then I pleaded guilty to the charges. I went back to prison. And when I was in jail, God told me, Peter, I want you to go to Bible college. Um, so I got out of uh, jail. I went to Bible college, done three years, and studied advanced diploma in theology. And then I come and become a bit volunteer prison chaplain um, at a case of prison in 2005. And I was from 2005 to 2010 voluntary, uh, three days a week. And in 2010, God told me to step out the boat. And what I mean by step out the boat is just, Peter, I want you to become a full-time volunteer. Peter, I'm going to just cut in here and we'll come back and we'll continue. I've just uh, been fascinated by your story as it unfolds. And there's a lot of dimensions to it. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Peter Lyndon James is our guest. He's in WA and being the leader and sharing his story in the Tough Love Tour in WA. And as you can hear, uh, this is the real deal. Sometimes we talk about drug issues with people who are more academic uh, in their approach. Here we are talking to someone about how you might get free from ice or meth uh, when you are coming from the side which was that he is himself a former addict and a pusher of drugs. Uh, Peter, as we continue our conversation now, you're in WA, you're talking to audiences. Undoubtedly, your personal testimony is a part of uh, of what you're talking about, but people must have real questions about the issues that they're facing with their children, with their teenagers, with their own addictions. What sort of things are people coming out when they uh, when they come to one of these events and they're saying, "I need help"? What are they What are they saying is happening in their life? So I specialise in addiction. Um, you can class addiction in five categories. You have an A, a B, a C, a D, and E. And how you'd handle an A is different than how you handle B. You can't actually help a C and a D and E. Well, there's three types of E's. A lot of families actually think they're doing the right thing in the way that they're helping their loved one, but in fact they're doing the wrong thing. And they think they're doing the right thing by putting a roof over their head um, when they keep hearing this voice, kick them out. And the wisdom of God is in the heart of a man and a woman, and the person of understanding draws them out. If I am the great shepherd of the sheep, my sheep know me, they hear my voice. And when a person starts using methamphetamines, they're not dealing with with a person, they're actually dealing with a drug. In order to help the person, you've got to treat the drug the drug turns the people that you love the most into the people that you hate the most. Um, and when you can't, when a person starts using the methamphetamines, you can't believe one single word that comes out of their mouth. Um, but as a person starts using drugs, they go from the A to the B. And, and what happens is it starts causing division in the home, unforgiveness and bitterness. Mum says to do it this way, Dad says to do it this way. And it gets to the point where mum and dad, or mum or dad, you hear this voice, you've got to kick him out. But they hear this other voice, but you can't, it's my son. And so they listen to the voice that says, but I can't, it's my son. <clears throat> and as they do that, 
unforgiveness and bitterness starts uh, happening within the family. So, Peter, when we're talking about tough love here, you're saying that the approach that we tend to use when there is a family member who has uh, drug effects, drug addiction, we tend to want to go the embrace them and help them to be comfortable and meet their needs route rather than the tough love that says... Uh, you know, uh, the you know, a boot uh, uh, up the backside and out the door. I mean, is this what you're saying? Is that uh, is that uh, that somehow or other you've got to cut people free and let them d- dive into the depths of 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 whatever might be ahead of them in order to actually help them? Is that the tough love you're talking about? Yeah, well, in a sense, yeah. When you determine the atmosphere of your home, if you want unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment, disrespect in your home then keep them in your home. But that's not happening in my home. And it's, it's just cause and effect. Um, I want love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and respect my wife and, and be part of the solution. I want a good atmosphere in my house. Now, if you can't inter- uh, um, complement that atmosphere to make that atmosphere happen, then you don't belong in my home. Once you become the age of 16 and above, um, you become responsible for your own choices. Children have taken away the right... Adults have taken away the right for the parents to speak into their life away. Well, it's my house. I pay the rent. I pay the mortgage and my rules or move somewhere else. You don't cut them off. You just say, well, if you choose to use that drug, you're not using it under my roof. But a lot of parents can't pick their children out because they think, where they are going to stay? Well, it's not really your problem. It's their problem. If they want to be dumb enough to stick a pick in their arm or smoke a pipe or pop a pill and use those substances, that changes them as a person and to bring the atmosphere in the house, they don't belong in the house. It's but, not tough love, it's cause and effect. But Peter, if we let our children go, or if we kick them out of the house, uh, that level of thought of what happens to my child, uh, what happens to me if I kick them out, and then the worst-case scenario comes, uh, they're overdose and uh, they're dying well, in a gutter, or uh, you know, how will I deal with that? How will I live with that the rest of my life? But but this is this is the the very very difficult decisions that that people have to make. It's not, it's not a difficult decision when you deal with it every day. I deal with suicide um, every week, I mean, uh, every week literally. But the, the methamphetamines and the Molotov cocktail of of chemicals that are in that drug that actually slows slowly kills the person. It sends them psychedelic. Ends up turning them into schizophrenia. They end up having to take medication then the rest of their life. Now, by you putting a roof over the head and letting them go and disappear for three, five days, ten days at a time, and they come back to your house and rest, and the only reason they come back to your house to rest is so no one will go through their pockets and get a good feed, and then they go out for another round. By you continuing to allow that happening, you're an enabler. In other words, you're providing them a safe place for them to slowly kill themselves. And that's what's happening. They're slowly frying their brain. Their bodily organs are getting destroyed. And they're slowly killing themselves. Now, it's their choice to stick the drug in their arm. It's their choice to smoke it. I mean, it's like you as an adult. It's your choice to have a beer or not to have a beer. It's your choice to have a smoke or not have a smoke. But this is my roof, my house. If you choose to use those drugs... You're not doing it under my roof. You're not giving up on your child. Okay, Peter, we're going to take a break because we're about to go to news. This hour, Peter Lyndon James is our guest. He told his own story over the past half hour. 
a story from childhood going through juvenile detention into adult jail, the dramatic encounter with God. Now he's helping families deal with getting their family members free from addiction. And what we're hearing is very confronting because it's not about making people feel comfortable who are in those stages of addiction, but actually having what Peter is calling tough love. He's in the middle of what's known as the tough love tour in WA and equipping families to find ways in which they can successfully handle a person who is on drugs. This may be your family we're talking about. It may be a family that's in your community. It may be some family that's connected to your local church. I'm inviting you to be a part of our conversation, 1-800-316-316. Peter's going to be speaking to groups in Albany in Western Australia this morning at the PCYC. Also tonight, St. Joseph's College. And uh, there'll be some ways that you can find out where he might be speaking in a community near you. Toughlovebook.com.au is Peter's website. Uh, Peter, let's let's extend our conversation here to families for a few moments. What you're sharing is very confronting. And what you're saying is really families have to protect themselves from the drug addict, the one who's abusing things like ice or meth, because if you don't protect yourself, that's what destroys the family. Is that the case? Um, no, not exactly, Mike. Uh, what, what, ha- what has to happen is you've got to bring the person to the end of themselves. So I actually specialise in methamphetamine addiction. And two things, one is showing the person, the person, how they can change their life. Currently, I have nearly 160 residents um, in my facility. Um, and also, I show and specialise in showing families how to bring the person how to a point where they want to make the decision to change because they want to make it. And every person who has a loved one caught up in addiction, they want them to stop using drugs and change their life. And so what they're trying to do in their strength is they're trying to tell that person, hey, you shouldn't use drugs, you stop, stop doing this, stop doing that. But the person using the drugs takes that as judgment. And what happens is you think you're doing the right thing by saying the 20 cents worth, but all you're doing is putting bitterness and resentment. You're judging them. You're condemning them. And you're turning those that, and it turns those that you love the most into people that you hate the most. You have all your family telling you, stop using drugs, stop doing this, stop doing that. In the end, they are hating your guts um, because all you do is judge them, you criticize them. The reason they're using the drugs in the first place is because they enjoy it. Why do you drink beer or have a glass of wine? Because you enjoy it. Why are they using methamphetamines? Well, because they enjoy it. And so I calibrate and show families. I get all the families, the mum, the dad, the brother, the sister, grandma, grandpa. I get them all on the same page and I show them how to work together as a team and you hand the person over the consequence of choices. Well, if you like to use methamphetamines, you're not staying in my home. You kick them out on the street. Where am I going to say, well, I'm sorry, you're not using drugs in our home. We love you. We care for you. We're happy to catch up with Hungry Jacks and buy you a burger or something to eat, but you're not staying in their home. If you want to use those drugs, see you later. You kick them out. Uh, okay, Peter, just it speeds up this process for them to come at a point where they want to change because they want to make it, so not, not because you want them to. We're talking about tough love, and you are saying expel this person from your home. And what you're really saying here is not because you're being nasty in that, but you're actually saying as a family you need to set the boundaries and then where the tough love comes in, you have to hold tight to those boundaries because those boundaries are going to be tested. Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. But, but Neil, I can tell you and your listeners, 
you will do what I've just told you to do, whether you like it or not. Uh, you will do it when you have a say to do it, or will you do it when you're forced to do it, Neil? But you will do it. You will do it. You can either act out of love or you'll do it out of self-protection or because of a growing resentment. You have no choice. Yeah. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316, and getting into how families play a role in rehabilitating a person who is addicted. And we're talking more particularly about ice, but it could be all sorts of addictions. Let's take a call. Debbie is on the line from Brisbane. Hi, Debbie. Welcome. Oh, hi, Neil. What are your thoughts, Debbie? Well, I have a brother that keeps going back into jail. This is probably his um, fourth time. And, yes, he is addicted to ice. And sometimes I wonder whether they get it in jail as well. But um, I've come to the point now where I've sort of said to him, um, you know, you make choices. What what, um, Peter was just saying before, you make make your choices. Um, I'm going to love you regardless of whether you do or whether you don't take drugs. And, um, and so that leaves it up to him to make the choice, not to do the right thing because I'm, I'm judging him. Debbie, good thought there. Let's get a response from Peter. Yeah, so basically what she's saying is, to, is just to tell him that he loves him. But up until now, she's probably, um, with Debbie, you've probably enabled um, your brother um, you've been doing what you're doing because you love him. And you realise that you've been doing the wrong thing. That he's doing what he's doing because he enjoys it. Um, and and because of what you've been through, you've started to set boundaries in your life. And you realise you've actually been doing it wrong. Would that be correct? Yeah, I, I was trying to encourage him and taking the burden on myself. And I realised, no, no, that's not that's not up to me. <laughs> and can I um, ask you what effect that had on your whole family? And your oh, home? yeah, yeah. Well, no one's talking to him. Um, my sister may may make some contact now, but basically they've cut him off. I was having phone contact, but then my daughter got ill, so I said I can't have you on the can't have you on the phone at the moment. But I'm writing letters. But I said eventually, yep. yeah, you'll be back on again on the phone. But, but basically, his actions have wiped the whole family out. What was that? Sorry. Basically, his actions have wiped the whole family out. Yeah, well, he threatened my dad. He broke my dad's ribs. He um, threatened. Yep. You know, most of the family. He didn't do it to me, perhaps because I wasn't actually there at the time. You know, but he he sort of. Can I? Yeah, go on. Can I ask you? Can I ask you a straight up question? Yes. When when you had your brother staying at your house, he doesn't. And, and he was and he was doing what he was doing. You would have heard this little voice kick him out, and then you would have heard another voice saying, "But I can't." He's my brother, correct? <laughs> I actually went and got prayed for because I was I was feeling really really sad for him and feeling what can I do what can I do and they said to me no you're not going to have to get off your brother they said what what you're really here for is to take that burden off yourself so they kind of helped me that way and they they said that it's up to God and up to him not you you know so did you hear a voice to tell you to kick him out what was that did you hear a voice asking you to kick him out well he's never he's never lived here He's never lived yeah. here, but and I've always put that boundary. He, he doesn't live here, but um, yeah, I will visit him. But he's so much in jail now, you know. Like, um, but his letters are very strange. Like the last letter, the letter before last was positive. He said he was reading, you know, God's word and and um, blah blah. And I thought, oh, I won't make too much of it, you know. Because, but then the, the last, I just got a letter today, and it was 
all over the place again. I, I don't know whether his brain's been damaged for good. What's going on in uh, in prison? Because a lot of prisoners, Peter, do in fact go and be a part of those studies that are being led by a prison chaplain, and uh, a lot of prisoners do find faith in Christ. Uh, is it possible that uh, that this is something that's happening in in Debbie's brother's well, life? Yeah, well, I was a prison chaplain at Acacia Prison for five years, and from two thousand five to two thousand ten, and, and we used to pack the chapel out. And with fellas, um, I grew up with a lot of fellas in the prison system. Now, I've got a, a big ride happening um, in October called Ride for a Rehab. And I'm trying to encourage uh, opening of rehabilitation centres rather than prisons. But even the prison system at the moment is, is a breeding ground for criminals and drug addicts. The prisons themselves that actually don't help people. When you put a person in prison, you must project an image that people perceive to fit in with where you are. The prison system is growing exponentially. Even the government that day, the decisions that are about to make, they're about to put 200,000 litres run letter petrol on an ever-increasing problem. In 2002, when I got out of prison, Acacia Prison hadn't opened. In 2005, when I started Acacia Prison, there was 400 prisoners. When I left Acacia Prison in 2010, there were 700 prisoners. And today, there's 1,700 prisoners. Um, all the prisons uh, in the whole of Australia are full. I've spoken most of them over the last 12 months, um, except for the first ones. I'm speaking in Casuarina Prison next week. They're about to put 800 more beds in the prisons. All the prisons across uh, Australia, there's lots of courses that you're supposed to do in the prisons, but they don't have enough facilitators to actually run the courses. That's why people aren't getting parole. Not only that, you have 1,700 prisoners stuck on a 10-hectare pro- property, there's not enough work for 1,700 prisoners, and the work that they get is probably one day's work per person um, in the prison. Um, the prison system is, a, is a bursting at the seams. So you have men who like to keep busy with their hands and doing one year, five years, ten years, um, and at the same time you put them in prison, it costs us $102,000 per year to house each prisoner. That's not mentioning the money it costs to actually look after the wife and the children. Peter, I'll cut in because we want to bring some more listeners in on this conversation, and uh, that is a big conversation to have about prisons, uh, prisons bursting at the seams, and it'd be interesting to know uh, just how many of those prisoners are there because of drug uh, addiction, drug crime. But let's uh, thank you so much to Debbie in Brisbane. Let's continue to take some calls. We'll need to be fairly quick because time is running short. Let's hear from Karen, also in Brisbane. Hi, Karen. Welcome along. Hello. Hi, Karen. What are your thoughts? Well, as a mother, I did go through the same um, situation with one of our sons um, to the point where I did do tough love in the end um, because I felt that I was enabling him at the time, giving out money, support in buying clothes, whatever he needed. He was on the streets. Um But in that time, I went through a lot of emotions as a mother, thinking that I was um, helping him, but I wasn't. So when I did the tough love, um, I would meet him in neutral ground. Um, I would buy him a meal. And to cut the story short, he's now 40 years old and he has turned his life around in taking responsibility of his own action. It was a time that he needed to see that I was not against him. 
because he believed I was, because I wouldn't give him money. I suspect I that's help. a process, Karen. I'm going to just cut short because we're short of time, but a quick response from Peter for Karen. What, what Karen's doing is the right thing, and what Karen's doing is actually what everybody in the end will actually have to do. Once a person starts using methamphetamines and they get past the B stage uh, and they go into the C and D stage, um, you'll end up coming to the point where you have no other choice. Um, but And when it comes to that point where you have no other choice, um, you can actually avoid the, the full-on punch-up with mum or dad. You can avoid the police coming to your house. You can, you can actually end it nicely, but lots of mums and dads find it hard to let go or ask their loved one to leave. But you can either ask them to leave when you want to under good circumstances or you can ask them to leave when you have to under bad circumstances but mark my words you will have no other choice but to evict them from your property if they continue down the road of using methamphetamines okay. you will have no other choice Karen, thank you so much for your call. And what I can hear coming through loud and clear is that there needs to be an appreciation that that drug user in your family uh, needs to take responsibility for the their own consequences in their life. And if you actually start to demonstrate and to articulate this idea of love early on, then you have a very good start because as things get worse, as you say, there is A, B, C, D and E, all of these different stages of the addiction. If you get in there early, uh, then you're going to be uh, saving an awful lot of heartache. Uh, let's take another call. Sue is in Brisbane. Thank you, Sue. What are your thoughts? Oh, yes, hello. Look, I'm um, just ringing up about my sister, her, uh, her daughter, my niece, she was actually on heroin and um, my sister was, it was the opposite. You know, she was always there for us. She would run after her and bail her out on every occasion, you know, give her money. And she always said that she was too scared not to in case anything happened to her. Well, my niece continued on, you know, with the drugs and then finally was murdered. So then, you know, my sister went into this other huge big guilt thing that you know she didn't protect her enough or whatever but I you know have to wonder whether she if she hadn't have enabled you know her would she have still been on the drugs and you know it just didn't work she was trying to protect her trying to protect her by doing that so uh, let's get a response from Peter the reality is, uh, the reality is it all is once in the Bible may I live by the word of God and it's a length to my feet <coughs> It's a light to my path. And it says, bring up a child in the way that that child should go so that child would not depart from it. And as parents, we have a responsibility for that child as a child from the day it's born to it turns 15, 16, to, to actually equip and empower that child to live the life that it's called to live. And at the age of 15 or 16, a child will take away the right for you to speak in its life and it will put into practice what you learn and what it's been taught. And even so, some parents have done a really good job of bringing up their children some kids um, use methamphetamines, heroin or other addictive drugs and substances, just like a parent will have a glass of wine or a glass of beer. Um, but because they have an addictive nature, um, they're doing it because they want to. And why do parents or why do listeners, why do listeners have a glass of wine? Because they enjoy it. Why do listeners have a cigarette? Well, because they enjoy it. Why, why do they have a beer? Uh, well, because they enjoy it. Why do I, or why did I use methamphetamines? Well, I enjoyed it. I why do I use heroin? Because I enjoyed it. What right does one adult have to tell another adult 
not to do something. And, and, and depending on the drug and the person using the drug, if, if, if you have a loved one using methamphetamines and you keep telling them, don't use drugs, don't use drugs, you're mad, what they're thinking is you're judging me, you don't love me. And all of a sudden, all these words start coming out of the mouth and they start blaming you for what they are like they are. They're grown adults. They are where they are because of the decisions that they have made. Uh, they're doing what they're doing because they actually enjoy it. Now, if you really want to help uh, your loved one get off of drugs, you band together as a group um, and you nominate one person who is strong enough to make the decisions to call the shots. You have a list of rehabilitation centres of people who are qualified to actually help and that are good rehabilitation centres. Um, and then when that person rings you up and asks for help, you say, hey, listen, I love you and I care about you. I'm happy to catch up and buy you a meal at Hungry Dash or somewhere like that. Um, but you are where you are because of the decisions you've made. No one can change you except for you. We're actually not qualified to help you if you've known nothing about the drug that you're using and the best ways to approach it. Um, but here's some numbers of people who are, and, and then you give them those numbers. Sometimes they'll ring you up and, and threaten suicide, but always speak in love, bring the truth in love. Always say, hey, no, there's more help out there. Encourage them. And change is only a choice away. But again, they're grown adults, and they're making the decisions um, because they like to do what they do. At, at some of my seminars, I have eight or ten of my blokes, and I stand them up in front um, of the crowd, and the crowd asks them, why do you use drugs? And as if they're talking to their own children. And all of my men will say, well, because we enjoy it. If, if um, people who haven't tried methamphetamines and other drugs, if you knew half of this stuff um, that, that goes through our brains, you'd be chucking donuts on the floor. Mm -hmm. you know, just, they're just people are so uneducated to um, what drugs does and how it feels and what it does to your system and, and the life that, that comes with using those drugs. Okay, Peter, let's cut in. I want to say thank you to Sue in Brisbane. We're not going to get through all of the calls today, but let's take another one. Uh, Linda is on the line from WA. Hello, Linda. Welcome. Hello. Is that Neil? It's Neil. Oh. And, uh, yes, and Peter's with us. What are your thoughts? Um. It's a very long story, so I'll try and put it in I need it super short. Yes. Um, I have been, um, oh, what's the word, um, taunted for something like 38 years by someone from a prison ministry. And it doesn't matter what I do. I've been to all the courses. I know everything that is being said. I know. I put it into practice. But I, I cannot get this. It's like there's a monkey on my back. And it's, you know, to do with addiction. And also fear in the person. Great fear from past life. I'm not making excuses neither. But, you know, past life and addictions and um, epilepsy. Taking seizures. Very, very fearful. Um, knows the Lord but goes, you know, okay for for a week or two and then back for a week or two. That's it. I won't say any more. I Linda, just need a lot of prayer to, to free me. I think you're talking about this is a long process and there are relapses. Peter, a very, very quick response for Linda. Um, without knowing all the information, it would be a bit hard, but what I can tell all listeners, um, any person who is caught up struggling with addiction, I know I can show you ways how to speed that process up. It doesn't have to be a 40-year process. It doesn't have to be a 30- or 10- or 15-year process. 
I can show you how to speed a person up to a point of wanting to make the decision to change really fast. You, you've been made 26 years institutions and prisons. Picture the fellow who, who actually discovered um, um, penicillin. And picture the, the fellow who actually discovered how to use a telephone. Picture the fellow who, who discovered how to fly. I honestly believe with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my spirit, that I have the answer on how to help a person caught up in the addiction, yet no one's listening. All right. Well, I want to say thank you so much to Linda in WA, and we have run out of time. I do want to mention, and I know that there'll be a lot of listeners who will want to go to your website. Actually, you have a book too called Tough Love, and uh, the Tough Love book website, toughlovebook.com.au. You're in WA, it's the Tough Love Tour, and you're bringing your very confrontive and and yet hope-filled message to families who are struggling with addictions toughlovebook.com.au uh, Is there any other websites that have your tour itinerary on um, there, Peter? Yeah, there's a, again, just for correction, tonight is at the Albany PCYC Tough Love Seminar um, where I'll be showing families how to bring a person to the point of wanting to make the decision to change. And that's Albany PCYC. That's this morning. And there's yeah. also another play that shows families their story. It's www.anymen.com dot com dot au that's any a n y m a n dot com dot au it's a free download it's a drama that twenty of my men put together uh, along with um, um, Swan uh, Christian College um, but we put together a real life story of the unfolding story of addiction and it tells the story from the mum's side the dad's side um, from the family that they grew up with no experience of drugs in their life it tells the story from the addict. But it's a real-life drama, and I guarantee you'll be bawling your eyes out crying through it. Uh, it won the Australian Film Fringe Festival um, last year, um, but it's a free download for any, anyone listening. Again, right. com. Okay, I so... Uh, run, yep. I also run Australia's largest and strictest rehabilitation centre. It's called Shalom House. It's www.shalomhouse.com.au. Okay, so Shalom House... Dot com dot au that's in WA uh, the that's free great. download and uh, listeners listening all over Australia they'll want to get a hold of this the free la- download from anyman.com.au and then the tour itinerary for the Tough Love Tour toughlovebook.com.au uh, Peter Lyndon James thanks so much for sharing your thoughts your insights your own story with us today on 2020 thank you very much and thanks for having me now. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.